last episode of the podcast, I discussed with Dr. Tripathi part one of the transplant guidelines. I'm delighted to carry on the conversation now, uh, looking at part two of the guidelines, and particularly uh, looking at uh, post-transplant care of these patients. Uh, but before we look at that, uh, Dr. Tripathi, it would be great to um, briefly discuss something you've mentioned in passing a couple of times in the earlier conversation, which was the change in the organ allocation system, and particularly this transplant benefit score and the national offering system. Could you just explain uh, a little uh, background of that and how now organs are allocated to patients in the UK? So, so um, for organ allocation, I think there's four things that we need to consider with um, number one, equity, uh, whether um, all, uh, all who need the transplant have equal opportunity to access to transplant, the need, uh, which uh, um, so those in greatest need are transplanted, which can help to reduce waiting list mortality. The benefit, which is to optimize the outcome for each um, um, allograft, and the utility, which is to maximize the years uh, gained. So prior to 2018, uh, the uh, livers in the UK were allocated on a, on a regional basis, uh, and there was eternal prioritization. Uh, and also there were these kind of zones uh, for retrieval, uh, recovery zones. Uh, and uh, priority was given to centres which had larger recovery retrieval zones. It was quite con controversial and a bit territorial at times. Uh, allocation was based on blood group uh, matching and also size matching and the UKELD, as I said, the UKELD of 49 or higher uh, would, would mean that the patient was su suitable for placing on the transplant list. Um, and this helped in terms of logistics and minimising ischemic times but there was some inequality in access geographically and also the, there were quite a lot of variation with regards to waiting list mortality in the different centres. So in April, March, April 2018, the National uh, Liver uh, Offering System was, uh, uh, was started and this was really a national system for elective transplants, only DBD uh, on a named patient scheme. Uh, and patients were offered a graft that uh, um, uh, most likely, if they're most likely to benefit in terms of survival. Uh, this is based on a transplant benefit score, which uh, included 21 recipients and seven donor factors. Uh, and this measures a difference in the predicted uh, post-transplant survival and the survival on the waiting list over five years. So there was, as you can imagine, there was quite a lot of work done and modeling done in 2013 on uh, over 600 donors. Uh, and the modeling predicted that uh, an additional 45 livers lives could be saved uh, if the uh, allocation system moved to a national system. Uh, and the data, most recent data, shows that there are fewer deaths on the waiting list, slightly better access for patients to transplantation with similar 90-day survival and uh, cold ischemic times. And, and an area, important area, is that there are fewer DBD uh, named offers for cancer patients. Uh, and there's a big rise in the use of DCD graphs for these patients. And also, um, I mean, I, I, I don't think we need to go into the nitty gritty of the actual system, but uh, uh, the different sites have the opportunity to either accept or decline. Uh, and the clock is ticking, so there's a certain amount of time that each site has to accept. And, and it goes around the different uh, sites, this particular organ. Uh, and and uh, what the system has shown is that there was a high named patient decline rate and also there was increased use of the fast track schemes. Uh, so this is an area that requires probably further uh, attention, but no doubt it has been uh, generally embraced by the transplant 
community. And the next step, I suppose, is probably to whether it, it can be used for DCG graphs, but that might be a bit, bit, uh, bit more challenging. So you've alluded a couple of times to the difference between DBDs and DCDs, which um, might be slightly foreign language to some uh, listeners, but, uh, but the donation of the cardiac death being more, more marginal graphs. Um, um, and there's been a growth in the number of those, uh, but also some technological changes to help improve their quality and utility of those organs. Um, can you just br briefly uh, describe some of the exciting developments in this area to help uh, improve the utilization of some graphs which may previously have had to be uh, rejected. Yes, so, so uh, thanks James. This is, this is quite a, a large uh, area uh, and extremely topical at the moment as you can imagine. So um, we're talking here about uh, less than optimal graphs, um, so-called marginal uh, donors. Uh, so the ideal liver um, graft is, is in a younger patient, less than 50, uh, who is uh, under uh, 100, 100 kilograms, has cold ischemic time of less than eight hours, less than 15% steatosis, and ICU stay of less than five days. That is the absolute optimal. And we don't see very many of those kind of patients. The, the population is aging and is getting fatter. So we're actually seeing the opposite, more of the other more marginal livers. So older patients, uh, more uh, uh, overweight, uh, patients and increased steatosis. So this is a real challenge for us. So although you might be seeing uh, the donor numbers being similar or more, the actual quality of the donors is, is maybe less. Uh, and and uh, th there is increased use, as we've discussed, of the donation after cardiac death, as opposed to a brain dead donor. Uh, this can lead to more problems with warm ischemia and uh, patients develop and it has been shown that the outcomes for patients who have DCD graphs is not as good as DBD graphs in a large UK study. They, they develop more ischemic complications, uh, something called ischemic tibillary lesions. Uh, and there's also increased uh, risk of uh, renal injury. Uh, we're actually working on a, um, on a, a, a study that we did uh, a number of uh, two or three years ago with uh, a national evaluation of CKD and the impact of DCD graphs, and we're just writing it up for publication at the moment. But DCD, increased use of DCD graphs have led to more CKD, chronic kidney disease. Uh, and really, a recent advance has been uh, that of machine perfusion. So normally, uh, the, the liver is, is on ice, uh, what they call, uh, call it static coke storage. Uh, and uh, that has its uh, kind of uh, own, own issues. There's, uh, there's more ischemic related damage, uh, what they call ischemia reperfusion injury is, is more uh, uh, common in, in, uh, in uh, graphs which are in, on, on ice. Uh, and it's also not possible to uh, assess the viability of the graft uh, when they're on ice. Uh, so there's been recent development in machine perfusion. This is really taking the uh, uh, retrieved organ and putting it on a machine uh, and uh, normal thermic liver perfusion has really taken off it. There are also hypothermic liver per machine perfusion um, uh, techniques, but particularly in the UK, normal thermic machine perfusion has taken taken off and this is really uh, perfusing the liver and it's a perfusate, which is usually the patient's own blood uh, and uh, it's put on a machine. The machine can recondition that uh, graft and also importantly assess the viability 
and, and whether it's suitable to be implanted in the recipient. And one of the measures they look at is lactate clearance. Uh, a large multi-center trial uh, showed that um, the, this machine perfusion achieved results which are actually better than static cold storage for both DBD and DCT grafts with 50% less uh, early allograft dysfunction, uh, which is a surrogate marker of long-term outcomes. Uh, there were also fewer livers discarded in the normal thermic machine perfusion arm, despite longer uh, preservation time. Uh, no differences in biliary outcomes, although long-term data isn't there yet. Uh, a further study from Birmingham called the Vital trial uh, showed that uh, this is a, a, a smaller, much smaller study of uh, just 22 organs. Uh, these organs would normally have been discarded uh, from, uh, and they were not accepted by any of the UK centers, but they were put on the machine uh, with uh, a mean preservation time of 18 hours. And all of the grafts survived uh, to 90 days. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the biliary complications were there. It didn't reduce the risk of biliary complications, but uh, successfully enabled transplantation in about 71% of discarded livers. Uh, so this is an area which is uh, very interesting. I think one of the, the challenges is really long-term data. In Birmingham, there is another project which aims to successfully transplant marginal DVDs or good DCDs uh, in patients who previously only have been considered for really the optimal grafts using static cold storage. And this looks at 90-day uh, patient survival. So this is a really interesting area. NICE guidance has also come out recently, uh, which I was uh, involved with. Uh, which uh, recommended the use of um, um, machine perfusion uh, as uh, in, under special measures, as long as there were uh, measures in place to audit the outcomes in these patients. Thank you. Now, moving on to the post-transplant care um, of these patients, one of the areas that those of us who are not specialists in transplantation often uh, uh, struggle to understand or unfamiliar with, at least, is the immunosuppression therapy. Um, so could you just run through the common immunosuppressant drugs that are used in patients following liver transplantation and, and what the factors that influence a particular regimen that a, a patient might be on? So, yes, yeah, so, so, in, so immediately at the time of transplantation, uh, there, there are these what we call induction regimens. Uh, so, um, immunosuppression needs to be very high early on and uh, the liver is relatively immunotolerant so there can be quite a significant reduction in immunosuppression over time uh, and sometimes in patients a lot of patients uh, after one year they may only require one agent but to start with most patients are on three agents which is uh, calcineurin inhibitor steroids uh, and an anti-metabolite such as azathioprine or mycophenolate uh, everybody really, this calcineurin inhibitor is key uh, immunosuppression, and this is fairly consistent throughout the centers. We're now using tacrolimus much more than cyclosporin, uh, and there are also once daily preparations. It's important to stick with a particular brand of calcineurin inhibitor, and there's been a lot of interest in generics uh, due to uh, cost savings. Um, Anti-metabolites, we, we use azathioprine, mycophenolate uh, is increasingly used, but uh, less so in, in uh, women of childbearing age uh, because of the teratogenicity risk, uh, teratogenicity risk, uh, steroids in all patients, but weaned over three months, uh, continued in those patients who have acute uh, autoimmune hepatitis uh, or recurrent rejection. Uh, we also use uh, mTOR inhibitors such as serolimus, um, and usually only after three months because of the increased risk of uh, uh, 
hepatic artery thrombosis and impaired wound healing. Uh, they can reduce the risk of de novo cancers, although uh, a study called the SILVA study didn't, didn't show long-term benefits in terms of reduced uh, cancer, HCC risk uh, in, in transplanted patients, uh, possibly early on, but not long-term. The long-term cancer risk was not affected. Um, and and uh, so, so really, as I said, the, the, the key thing is really in liver transplant, you don't need as much immunosuppression as in some of the solid, some of the other solid organ transplants, such as renal uh, or, or heart and lung. And, and it, uh, we must always think once your patient is uh, one year into, uh, uh, one year after a transplant, to try and reduce the immunosuppression load. Uh, there are a number of uh, regimens, uh, particularly one of the complications of uh, calcineurin inhibitors is renal dysfunction. Uh, so there are renal sparing strategies to try and minimize uh, the impact of calcium inhibitors. And uh, as I said, interleukin receptor, uh, interleukin-2 receptor antagonists have been used to delay introduction of tacrolimus or run tacrolimus at a lower dose. Uh, or uh, long-term introduction, the microphenolate can, can uh, allow you to uh, run the tacrolimus at a lower dose. Um, it's, and I should also have added that uh, tacrolimus, calcium inhibitors and mTOR inhibitors require therapeutic drug monitoring. And this could be a barrier to, uh, to prescribing some of these agents, uh, particularly uh, in secondary care or some of the smaller uh, sites, uh, if there isn't uh, the facility for rapid uh, results, access to results of therapeutic drug monitoring. Your paper um, provides some excellent detail on the post-transplant complications that these patients encounter and how they might differ over time following their surgery. Could, could you just briefly summarise uh, those and, and how, how they change over time? So uh, complications we can really divide according to the, the, the time after transplant. Uh, so early on, we're talking really in the, in the first week or so, uh, the complications are uh, mainly related to the surgery itself. For example, wound infections uh, and also uh, chest infections, primary non-function, renal injury, uh, renal uh, dysfunction early on can have an adverse uh, impact on long-term outcomes. And as I've said, this particularly we're seeing this in the, in the DCD era, uh, with with uh, more patients having uh, uh, DCT grafts. Um, in the first month, uh, the complications, the infective complications, continue, but then patients can develop acute rejection. Um, normally, it's TCL mediated rejection, but the antibody mediated rejection is also we're recognizing it more. Uh, and some cases can be refractory and require plasma exchange. Hepatic artery thrombosis can also occur at this time frame, and if it occurs within 21 days of transplant, uh, patient requires superurgent listing. In the one to three month period, uh, infected, and again, infections, 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 always there is the risk of rejection. CMV, cytomegalovirus, uh, we always uh, check the donor and recipient status. So if the donor is uh, positive and the recipient is negative, uh, they'll be offered prophylaxis for usually a three month period. However, uh, during this COVID-19 situation, we're having issues with getting some of the results back for CMV PCR. And actually uh, all patients uh, who are all recipients of, donor, uh, of uh, donors that are positive for CMV are being offered uh, prophylaxis with valpancyclovir. And these patients have uh, anti-PCP prophylaxis for up to three months as well. 
uh, in, 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 in all cases. And then beyond that, more long-term complications, sort of three to six months or further, uh, we were talking about rejection, late rejection, biliary complications, particularly for DCT grafts. And the other thing is cancer. So immunosuppression is itself a risk factor for cancer. So a cancer that we look for, look for is uh, that we can see even at an earlier stage is post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder or PTLD, which is often associated with Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, we also are increasingly recognizing the role of hepatitis E. So everybody, any patient who presents with graft dysfunction, they always check uh, hepatitis E, which can be treated with ibuprofen in some cases. And then more long-term, remember these are patients who, particularly with increased um, numbers of patients with metabolic syndrome, uh, they're already predisposed to cardiovascular complications. So, so the cardiovascular complications are also increased uh, in, in transplant patients. Uh, so we monitor blood pressure, um, we monitor the lipids and add lipid lowering therapy at an earlier stage. Um, and, and so it's always always important to check for those uh, risk, risk factors. Uh, weight gain is quite common in these patients as well. Um, the other thing is disease recurrence, uh, particularly uh, cholestatic diseases can recur and PSE can have a poor uh, prognosis. Um, uh, so those are the kind of main, I think with regards to cancers, there's a recent uh, study showing that particularly in patients who are transplanted for alcohol-related liver disease and who smoke, they have a hugely increased risk of uh, cancer the aerodigestive tract, such that some, I think countries are saying, you know, if, if you've got alcohol-related liver disease, you must stop smoking before you will be consider, will consider you for, uh, for a transplant. Uh, and the other kind of cancers to look out for are, are skin cancers as well. Uh, in, in all, all patients, particularly those on, uh, you know, the azathioprine. Thank you. So as we draw to an end, uh, there's just two areas of service delivery I'd like to briefly touch on. Um, and first is about this hub and spoke model that is developing in the UK in some centres. Uh, it'd be helpful if you could just briefly describe that and how you see it potentially developing further um, in, the coming, in, in, the, in the coming years. So at the moment we have you know the seven uh, transplant centres, <coughs> and each uh, regional centre has a catchment and a referring pool. <coughs> so for Birmingham, you know we cover quite a large area, <coughs> which includes uh, almost the whole of Wales, um, uh, all the way to Northampton, Southampton, Merseyside, and Derby, uh, and we have very established links with all of these referring centres, and in some. In some cases, we have outreach for satellite clinics where some of us go every sometimes six weekly, three monthly to, to visit these sites and see patients who may be potential transplant candidates or help with uh, or attend NDTs to discuss complex cases. Um, so this is the kind of current system, really. We, we, we have a certain catchment where, where the referring teams have traditionally referred to a particular site. It isn't without its problems. So there was a recent publication uh, from uh, one of the trainees in Birmingham, Willem Webb, uh, who looked at the kind of almost this postcode lottery. Uh, so the, the, the increased uh, uh, time to travel to a transplant centre was associated with the increased risk of death after listing. Uh, and also reduce likelihood of transplantation or recovery. Uh, so as I said, it's 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 not ideal, and uh, you know a way to try and overcome this is with the satellite or outreach clinics. 
uh, increase engagement with the referring centers is really key. So we have, for example, um, once a year, although it didn't happen this year, we have a, uh, we used to have a referrers day where, where we all are referring uh, teams are invited uh, to, to come to Birmingham for a series of talks on transplantation. Uh, there's also been discussion about increasing the number of uh, transplant units, particularly uh, covering the Northwest where there's such a high uh, incidence of liver disease, but whether uh, you know, this requires major commitment uh, and it's not clear if NHS England uh, have an appetite uh, to increase the number of transplant centres, particularly at this time. Okay. And as we close, it would be remiss, I suppose, not to mention COVID um, and the impact of the pandemic on liver transplantation. Uh, how, how has the UK transplant community managed its services during the first wave um, and how do you think we can bring lessons forward um, into the impending second wave? Yeah, so I, I'll tell you, so the, during the first wave, obviously, this is all very novel and we really did, didn't know what to expect. So I, the number of transplants went down drastically. I think the main uh, uh, problem was the availability of intensive care beds. Uh, uh, and, and and real shrinking of the of the donations as well. So we really did only a handful of transplants, but it, but really it became apparent that that this is not really the way forward. Patients, uh, uh, there was always there are always patients that are desperately requiring a transplant. So to, we came out of that gradually, and we're at the stage where. Uh, we've almost got back to normal transplant activity. This is prior to the second surge. Uh, and then uh, now we're in a slightly challenging position again. Um, and and uh, uh, so, so, so in the last two or three months, there has been some study, large study, uh, looking at uh, the outcomes of transplanted patients, uh, an international registry study, uh, I think about 18 uh, countries. Uh, uh, and they found that that the outcomes of uh, patients, transplanted patients with COVID-19 is very similar to those patients that uh, are not transplanted but have COVID-19 with about a 20% mortality in those patients that are admitted to hospitals. There was an increased risk of ICU admission and invasive ventilation amongst the transplanted patients. But overall, the actual outcomes were very, very favorable. And really, this is a strong case to continue transplant activity. Uh, and and uh, this has helped us to prioritize transplantation. Certainly, you probably find if you go around the different transplant units that there has been a lot of effort put in to try and um, maintain the transplant service uh, and to ensure that all referrals uh, are seen in a timely manner and that they, they're not unduly disadvantaged uh, due to COVID-19. Thank you. Well, that's about all we've got time for uh, today. And that draws us an end uh, to an end of this episode uh, of the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast. Uh, Dr. Pathy, thank you so much uh, for joining uh, me today and talking us through those really excellent uh, guidelines published in two parts in the journal. Um, and if you're listening, I'd really encourage you to download those articles. They're freely available, open access on the Frontline Gastroenterology website and look at um, the recommendations in more detail. They're very uh, practical um, and uh, will be uh, a useful uh, guide to um, to everyone um, who's involved in the care of these patients. So, Dr. Trapathy, thank you very much for talking us through those. Um, and if you've liked the episode today and found it useful, do rate it on your podcast provider. Uh, but until next time, we'll see you then. Goodbye.